Alright, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We'll pick up in verse 1. And I'm going to offer a word of prayer to our great God. Father, we bless Your holy name and we continue to worship You in spirit and truth as we transition now from song and praise to uh, the teaching of the Word. It's such a glorious book, the book of Romans. It's been such a wonderful adventure. And so I pray, Father, that today as we consider this text, that we would be greatly encouraged by Your Word. I pray that we would be challenged. I pray whatever the need may be in this room, Father, You know what You intend to do through Your Word. And I pray, Father, that You would have Your way. I pray that Your Holy Spirit would minister to hearts and lives in this room today, God. And so we praise You. It's all for Your glory. And we worship You in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. So I, I titled this message, God is Not Done. God is not done because really chapters 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with the fact that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's, he's not. And so for the first eight chapters, Paul outlines first for us our necessity for God and His grace because we are all hopelessly and helplessly lost in our sin. That no one is good, no not one, everyone is guilty, we all stand condemned, and that we are incapable of doing anything about it outside of Christ. And so God graciously intervenes into our lives in the person of Christ, and as we put our, our faith and our trust in Him, we are justified. So that kind of becomes the next section of Romans. And Paul talks all about what that means, to be declared righteous, innocent before God. We are justified in Him and that it comes through faith. And then he begins to talk about sanctification. Now that we are declared righteous, now that we are uh, justified in God's sight, God begins the wonderful work of sanctification in our lives. We are growing more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus. Less like the old self, more like the new man in Christ. That is sanctification. And then finally he gets to chapter 8 and he outlines all of these glorious blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit becomes a very central part of the book now. Uh, up to that point he was uh, re referred to maybe twice and then in chapter 8, 20 times. 20 times uh, Paul references the Holy Spirit. And he talks about our spiritual adoption. Not only have we been made righteous. God didn't stop there. As a judge, He didn't just say, okay, not guilty, now get out of here. He said, not guilty, now enter into My family. I have adopted you as My beloved son or daughter. And all of those blessings are outlined in chapter 8. And then all of a sudden it turns on a dime, it would seem, in chapter 9. And Paul says, you know, there are all of these wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ, but I am so deeply vexed, so deeply grieved for my brethren, my countrymen, my fellow Israelites. They don't know these blessings. They have not received these blessings. And then he goes so far as to say, I could wish myself cut off from Christ. I could wish myself accursed, damned, if that meant that my countrymen could be saved, that they could know Christ. And so all throughout chapter 9, Paul begins to talk about the fact that they had rejected Christ in this time so that salvation could ultimately go to the rest of the world. God sent His Messiah. God sent <clears throat> excuse me, the promised Christ. 
but he was rejected by the very people that he came to save. And so then salvation went out to the rest of the world. But there would come a point in time when God would restore the nation of Israel. He would restore them. And Paul talks about that in chapter 11. If their rejection meant riches for the world and salvation, what would their acceptance mean? And so God is not done with the nation of Israel. God is working still. And so that's, that's kind of the thrust of these chapters. That is the context. So I wanted to make that very clear. But we're going to be looking at some practical things that happen in this chapter as well. And some things that I think will be very relevant to you and I. And I, I hope and trust that this is going to be such a, a blessed word for us. But uh, first off, what we're going to notice is, is that God has always kept for Himself a people. God is a keeping God. And so we are so grateful for that. We praise the Lord for that because we all understand how badly we need that. How badly we need to be kept. We're saved by grace and we're kept by grace. Amen? But we're also going to see that God does blind people. He has blinded the Jews. And that is challenging for us. That's where the rub starts to come in. And we may squirm a little bit. And that's understandable. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around some of these things when we talk about the doctrines of election, predestination, God hardening people's hearts, God blinding people for His ultimate purposes. And so we'll, we'll be getting into a little bit of that in our text today. That comes up. It comes up frequently in uh, chapters, really in the end of chapter 8 and then throughout 9 and 11 in particular. And so we'll be dealing with that a little bit today as well. And uh, we'll be dealing with the issue of, of works. Good works. And that, I really want to hit hard on that. So it's going to be a, a nice mix of things that we're going to cover today. Some of it is challenging. Some of it is uh, it's milk. It goes down smooth. It tastes good. It's nutritious. Some of it is meat. It's uh, chewy. It's hard to digest. And some of it is medicine. It is bitter. It goes down and it is painful. But it is it is for our ultimate health. And I didn't make that up, by the way. I stole that from another pastor. I heard that recently. I liked it. So at any rate, that's what we have in front of us today. So Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul is going to ask a question and he's going to answer it. Verse 1, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of of Benjamin. So we'll notice in this text several transitional phrases, and here's the first one I say then. So it's basically in light of what was just said in chapter 10, and that was Paul talking about the fact that having this glorious message of grace and the gospel, we have a responsibility to share it, right? And he said, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And I asked the question, Does our church have beautiful feet? But then he goes on to say, but the issue is not so much that they haven't heard it, but that they have heard it and they have rejected it. And that God said, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a stubborn and rebellious people, yet they would not turn. And so then Paul says, has God cast away His people? Is God altogether done with His people? Has He rejected them? Has He refused them? Is God done? And then he answers that question when he says, certainly not. And I've talked about this before. That is the strongest possible language that he could use when he says, certainly not. 
That is the strongest Greek grammatical negation that he can use. It's almost like outrage at the question. So he's adamant. He is not done with his people. And that's important because there are people within Christendom that would tell you that God is done with, with Israel. He is done with national Israel and all of the promises that were given to them have now been given to the church and that we have replaced Israel. We are spiritual Israel. And we don't, we don't believe that. We don't teach that. And this would be one big reason why we don't. And he says, look, I'm an Israelite. I am the seed of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's making a very logical point here. He's like, look, is God done with the Jews? Obviously not, because I am a Jew. And he's able to say, I'm an Israelite. I have come from the seed of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. That's something that the Israelites would be so very proud of if they could trace their lineage to the tribes, one of the tribes. And Paul could certainly do that. And he says, so just by that alone, we know God is not done with the Jews altogether. And He's not. He is saving them, but He's saving them in Christ. God is not done with the Jews. God was saving the Jews still, but He was doing it through Christ. There has always been a mass rejection from the Jews, however, for a time, but there will be a mass reception. There will come a day when there will be this mass repentance of the Jews and they will see Christ and they will recognize that He is in fact the Messiah the foretold one, and that they had altogether rejected him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Such an awesome verse. He says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That's pretty interesting, huh? He foretold a time when the house of David would look upon me whom they pierced. Now, who might that be? It's Jesus. That's right. And so this is a a messianic prophecy. And what's going to happen? They're going to mourn. They're going to grieve. As though it were at the, the, the loss of one of their own children. And we can understand what that would look like. You know, the loss of a child and the the anguish, the grief. That, that would happen in, in such a situation. And God says that's what it's going to be like when they recognize they rejected the Christ, the Messiah, and that they had killed Him. And yet their eyes are going to be open to the fact one day that it was Jesus all along. And so that's going to be a glorious time. And there are other Scriptures even in the same book that talk about this, this idea. They're going to look upon him and say, where did you get those wounds? And he's going to say, I got them in the house of my friends. Really interesting stuff. And so we know, we look forward to a time when Israel will receive Christ big time. But that time is not yet. Right now, God is still using their rejection of the Christ to push the message all around the world for every age. And so Paul is now going to give an Old Testament illustration to make this point that God is not done. So verse 2, God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So again, Paul affirms the fact that God has not cast away His people. He reaffirms God's commitment to them. 
the people whom He foreknew. God foreknew His people. And I just think it's important. This word comes up somewhat often in the New Testament, but I think that more times than not, it's, it's really misunderstood. When we talk about God's foreknowledge, this is not as though He knew what was going to happen ahead of time, as though He looked down the corridors of time and understood how people would react or respond, and so that determined His, his divine and sovereign decree. Um, people tend to understand it that way, but that's really not what it means. It literally means foreordination, foreordained. And uh, we really get the sense of it in Jeremiah 1.5 when he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So that's God's foreknowledge. He intimately knows you. Everything about you. Everything that's going to happen to you. Everything. He knows every hair on your head. That's more impressive for some people than others. Um, but... He knows every thought that you think, every hurt that you feel, um, every doubt, uh, everything. God is intimately aware. He knows you in the most intimate sense. It's not that He just knows about you. He knows you. And so Paul's going to reference 1 Kings. He's going to reference, uh, reference 1 Kings 18-19, through 19, the story of Elijah and how Elijah pleaded against Israel and said that he alone was left. And so we know the story, our Sunday school grads in here know the story that um, there was a, a dark time in Israel's history when King Ab, uh, Ahab and Queen Jezebel were ruling and there was idolatry and false religion prevalent in the land and God raised up Elijah to be a prophet to come against all of this. And so he did one day, he came up on the Mount Carmel and he challenged the prophets to basically a battle of gods, if you will. And we know there was only one God, the one true God, the true and living God of the Bible, and he knew that. So he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you have all your prophets build up an altar and call down fire from heaven, and then I'll do the same and we'll see who's the true God. Well, they did, and they tried for hours and hours. They even began to cut themselves, pleading that Baal would show up on their behalf and show himself mighty, but guess what? He never did. Because there is no God but our God. Amen? Amen? So when Elijah got up there, he said, I want you to dig a trench around the, the sacrifice and fill it with water and dump water all over the sacrifice. And they did that, and then fire came down from heaven and consumed it instantly. And so then they knew that Elijah's God was the one true living God. And so Elijah called for all of those prophets, those false prophets, to be executed. And they were. And so there was this tremendous victory that happened in the name of God. And so he was truly in a high place. He was, this was a, a mountaintop experience in a very literal sense. But then guess what? He came off the mountain. He came down the mountain and word got to him that Jezebel found out what had happened and that he was as good as dead. He was a marked man. And so he cries out to God this very thing. God, they have altogether turned against your, your prophets. They've killed them. The whole nation has turned aside. And I am the only one left. You ever felt like that before? I'm the only one. And now they want to kill me. And so what was God's response to Elijah? Verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So God refutes his claim. He says, you may think that you're the only one, but you are not. I have reserved, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Let me just say this real quick, uh, side note. It's, it's actually pronounced Baal. That's how you pronounce it. And uh, for whatever reason, most of us, even though we know that, we still just say Baal. And so for that reason, I'm, it is kind of easier. I'm going to say Baal any time that I mention it. But it's actually um, Baal. And so I couldn't help but think of this. You know, um, My fear was that people might not come to church today because, you know, the, the Super Bowl, right? But I'm so, so delighted to see you guys in here and to recognize that you did not bow at the altar of football. <laughs> Amen. Had to say it. Well, you know, we talk about Baal quite a bit. It comes up all throughout the Scriptures. And this is very significant that these men had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so I just wanted to take a moment and talk about, get a little history here. What is this all about exactly? And so in Judges, we kind of see one of the first mentions of of Baal. And it it goes like this, Judges chapter 2. Now we know the nation of Israel, they had already entered into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then from there, it really just it didn't go well. This vicious cycle began where things are going good for them. They would turn away from God. They would begin to worship false gods. God would bring in punishment and chastisement. They would cry out to God. He would send them a deliverer. Things would go good again. And then they would go right back to worshiping false gods. And that happened over and over. So we see this in Judges chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord has said and the Lord has sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. So all the way in the beginning we're seeing this this uh, idolatry that's happening, and we see how God feels about it. We see how God responds to it. He's not very happy, is He? In fact, he, He opposes them in every way. It said everywhere that they went, God was against them, bringing calamity on them. That's a frightening thing. That's a terrible thing to be under the hand of the Almighty God's wrath like that, to be under that calamity that He brings down on idolatry. Well, that's kind of the, one of the first mentions of Baal. I would like to read to you this, this quote here. One commentator says, Idol worship, such as the golden calf in the wilderness, flared up again. This is the commentary on, on that account in Judges. He says, Spur, uh, Spurious gods of Canaan were plentiful. El was the supreme Canaanite deity, a god of uncontrolled lust and a bloody tyrant. As shown in writings found in Rosh Shamra in North Syria. And his name means strong or powerful. Well, Baal, the son of and successor of El, was Lord of heaven. He was a farm god of rain and storm. 
his name meaning Lord or Possessor. His cult at Phoenicia included animal sacrifices, ritual meals, licentious dances, and chambers centered to sacred prostitution by men and women. So that was Baal worship. That's who Baal was. That was the worship that was involved with Baal. And that was some of the history there in Israel. Now I say all that to say, this was very real. It was very widespread. It was, um, it was a horrific thing that was happening. God hated it. Yet there were 7,000 men here who stayed away from it. How? How could that be? When you have these awful uh, rulers, you have this wicked king and queen who have given themselves to this kind of worship and they have encouraged this widespread worship in the nation of Israel to these kinds of gods and these kinds of practices and the vast majority of the nation did give themselves to it and they were even killing God's prophets. And then Elijah thought that he was the only one left. Now what was it exactly that kept those 7,000 from bowing the knee? I mean, I don't think that there was probably anything special about those guys. In all honesty, they should have bowed the knee just like the rest of the nation that had gone sideways. But there was something that kept them. There was something that caused them to stay faithful. God had a purpose. God had a plan. God was in control. And God said, I have kept 7,000 men to Myself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that is the keeping power of God. God reserved them. I think that apart from God doing that, they most certainly would have turned. I think that the, the power of everything that was happening would have been too strong for them. And yet, God in His faithfulness kept them to Himself. And we see this throughout the Bible. Just to name a few Scriptures. In Genesis 26, uh, 20, verse 6, we know that Abraham had gone into this land and he was telling everyone that his wa uh, sister, his wife, was actually his sister. And so Abimelech tried to take her as his wife, not realizing that she was already married to Abraham. And then God came to him and it says this, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. That is, you didn't realize that she was taken by another. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So he, in a sense, was innocent. He had his integrity. He didn't know. And he was going to go in and commit this heinous sin before God unknowing, but God intervened. God said, I kept you. I did not let you touch her. And isn't that so often our prayer, God, keep us or we won't be kept. Help me, God. I need you to keep me close to you because apart from you, I already know what my propensity is. I already know what's going to happen. Don't you feel the weight of that? Don't we all know what would happen to us in a moment without God? If you don't know that, God will teach you that. Just be straight with you. You know, I mean, God taught me that. I remember a time where it act, the, the thought actually started to come into my mind that maybe I'm just not as bad as or wasn't as bad as other people that I was around and for some reason I got it and others didn't. And you know what? God taught me otherwise. And He did it with finesse. I mean, He really showed me that outside of His love and His care and His keeping power, I know that I am prone to go off the deep end. Prone to wander, just as the song says. Well, John 17.15, Jesus is praying for 
his believers, and he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus was praying to the Father. I mean, just wrap your mind around that. Jesus was praying for us. And Jesus was praying that we would be kept from the evil one. And that God would protect us, that God would preserve us in the midst of the fact that we have an enemy that hates us. We have an enemy that hates God, hates anything that's created in His image, and especially hates anyone who calls upon His name. And Jesus said, I am praying, Father, that You would keep them, that You would protect them, preserve them. And then in Jude, in the New Testament, of Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 1 and then verse 24, it says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So make no mistake, it's God who keeps us. God keeps the ones whom He, he loves, the, one, the ones whom He has, has called and has saved and uh, we so desperately need it and I praise God that he does that that he who began a good work is what faithful to complete it he will bring it to completion you hear me say that so often that's very real to me I praise God for it I lean on that I thank him for it and so we see it it could not be clearer in the text God said I kept those people for myself the rest of the nation turned. The rest of the nation has worshipped these false idols. The rest of the nation has killed the prophets. The king and the queen are totally wicked and against me. But I kept these 7,000 men for myself. God is in control. I mean, I, that, I think that's what I take the most comfort in. And I'm going to continue to expand upon this. But God is not reactionary. God didn't just wind this thing up, turn it loose, and now as it starts going, He's kind of filling in the blanks. and kind of. No, God is absolutely in control. We are not in control. We are not free. God is free. He is the only truly free being in the world. You know what I mean when I say that? Like, like there are uh, so many things within us that cause us to not really be free. We're tainted by sin. We are corrupted through the fall. We are surrounded by this world's influences. Um, we have the enemy, the devil, who's coming after us. And, I mean, it's just like being tossed in a sea, is it not, so often? And we're just struggling to make it through the day. We're just struggling to stay faithful. We're just struggling to try to put one foot in front of the other. We have to go outside of ourselves for truth. We have to go outside of ourselves for sustenance. We have to go outside of ourselves for any kind of relational, uh, any kind of relational um, needs that, that we have in life community but God is totally free he is not compelled by anything outside of himself and God is um, the one to whom we have to go to for all things he indeed is truth and light and life and he is free and he is in control and I, I praise God that we serve a God like that don't you do you not praise the Lord that he is Almighty, that He is all-powerful, that He is totally free, and that He is in control. I hope that you do. I find great comfort in that. Well, verse 5, we're going to see that it's all according to grace. Kept by grace. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to 
the election of grace. So here's the next little, trans, uh, next little phrase here, transition phrase. Even so then, so in light of everything that was just said about God preserving people for Himself, He says at the present time. So now Paul's talking about His day. So just as it was in Elijah's time, so too now in Paul's day, there remains a remnant. There is a remnant and it is according to the election of grace. And so Jews who had professed faith in Jesus the Messiah, they were all around. I mean, think about it. You got Paul here, but you had Peter, James, Jude, Matthew, all of these Jews who had uh, professed Christ as Savior and Lord. And so obviously not all the Jews had turned away and God was saving the Jews as well. And we see that here. This was the remnant. So just as there was a remnant all throughout history, there is st uh, still a remnant in this day according to God's election of grace. According to God's election of grace. And so we're told here that God elected these people. That God chose. And that's simply what it means. It's a straightforward word. Uh, it means to choose. And we understand it. We're going to have elections coming up this year. And so it's all that you're hearing about so often in the news amongst other things. But it's an election year. And so God elected, God chose these people and it was according to His grace because nobody deserves it. You understand? Nobody deserves to be chosen by God. We have all turned aside. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and we all deserve a just and righteous punishment. And the Scriptures could not be more clear about that. So for God to choose to save anyone is pure grace pure mercy and that's why it is the election of grace there's nothing that was inherently deserving of the sinner there was nothing that was beautiful or nothing that would make God think man if only I had that person on my team then I'd really be able to advance my kingdom that's not how God operates it's purely grace God chooses to save and to lavish his love and affection upon these people and to advance his kingdom through them it's all part of His own sovereign and divine initiative. So much of it is a mystery to us. I don't know why. I don't know why God chooses whom He chooses. Um, but He knows, and that is how He functions. So verse 6, it says, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. That is such a confusing statement. I mean, the first line there makes sense. You're kind of tracking, okay? So if it's by grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace, okay? But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. It just gets more and more confusing as it goes. But it's really simple what he's saying, and that is if it's by grace, if God has saved by grace, then it had nothing to do with the works of righteousness, the works of keeping the law. And if it were by works that people were saved, then grace would be nowhere in the equation. It is never a mixture of the two. It's one or the other. And we know that works just doesn't get it. Our works are not working. It is purely by grace. So here when he's talking about it being according to works, he's talking about outward righteousness for attaining God's favor. Keeping all the rules so that God will love you. Keeping all the rules so that God will one day save you. That's the kind of works that... Paul is so often referring to. And so works in that sense, they don't save. 
Only trust in the finished work of Jesus saves. Amen? It's the works of another. It's the works of uh, Jesus Christ that ultimately saves us. So, at this point, I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about works. It's not exactly the point of this text here, but over and over and over throughout the book of Romans, I have talked about how we're saved by grace, not by what? Works. And I have hit that every single week almost, I'm pretty sure. And so, as I was kind of going over this, I thought I really should stop and talk about why works are important and where works do fit into the equation. So we're told here that when God elects, when God keeps people, it's by grace alone, nothing inherently good or deserving of the person. It is by grace, not of works. If it were works, it wouldn't be grace. Okay, so we're clear on that. It's by grace. But good works are so necessary to the saved life. Hear me on that. Let me say it again. Good works are so necessary for the saved life. The person who is justified, who is saved, who is walking in light, ought to be engaged in good works. Guys, all of us in here, if you have named the name of Christ, we ought to be doing good works. And so I want you to think this through. Think this through with me. Follow me here. So what exactly are good works? Well, according to John Frame's systematic theology, he has a, a good... Um, He has a a good handle on this, I think. It's very helpful. He says, A righteous deed or a good work is one, one that obeys the proper standard. So that's God's law, God's word. That's where it starts. A good work obeys God's standard, His law. Two, it seeks the proper goal. And that is God's glory and the success of His kingdom. So it's according to His law and it seeks the proper goal, which is the glory of God and for the success of His kingdom. And thirdly, it is motivated by true faith and love. That is a good work. That is a good work. It is according to God's standard. It is for God's glory and for the furtherance of His kingdom. And it is done out of love and faith. So you have the standard, the goal, the motivation. That is all, that's what good works encompass. That's kind of deep, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a little more complicated in a sense than you might have assumed. But that's what makes a work truly a good work because as I've said before, you can do the right thing for the wrong reason. You can do something charitable just for notoriety because you want to be seen. So that's not a good work. Or you can do the right thing but do it the wrong way. You can share your faith and be totally obnoxious about it. Come across in a very arrogant kind of way. And so you're doing the right thing, but you're going about it all wrong. So are you really doing it for love? Are you really doing it for God's glory? Are you even really doing it the way God's Word has said you ought to do it? So those are the kinds of things we have to take into account when we're talking about good works. Following me? Okay. I want to read to you from Westminster Confession of Faith. This is something that was written in 1647, and it outlines many things, but in it it talks about this idea of good works. And so it says this, Good works are done in obedience to God's commandments. Alright, so there's that, as I just said. And they are the fruit and the evidence of a true and lively faith. So good works are the outflow of a true and lively faith. Is your faith alive? Is your walk with the Lord real? Is it genuine? Is it living? Is it powerful? Then true works 
are going to be the evidence of that. They're going to be the fruits and the evidence of that. And it says, and by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. So good works demonstrate that you are indeed thankful to God for who He is and what He has done for you, and you want to bless the Lord and bless others through good works. Next, it says that it will strengthen their assurance. You know, if you are about doing good deeds in the name of Jesus, that brings confidence in your walk with the Lord, does it not? If you see someone doing the opposite of good works, doing bad works or no good works at all, well, there's some red flags there. There's some cause to be concerned. And so we know here that good works strengthen assurance. It says that it edifies the brethren. Good works, it encourages, it builds up. If we are busy doing good works in the name of the Lord, it only blesses the body, amen? It blesses folks uh, that are in our life. It says that it adorns the profession of the gospel. And that is to say it makes the gospel more beautiful. It makes the gospel more lovely. If you name the name of Christ and you talk about the gospel and you are full of good works and good deeds, then it makes the gospel even more credible and more lovely to people who don't have it. If you name the name of Jesus and you say that you have embraced the gospel but you have nothing but bad works or no, no, uh, no good works at all, it causes people to wonder about this message that you are proclaiming. It says that it stops the mouth of adversaries. People can't say anything against you when you have that kind of reputation, when you are one who adds value to people's lives, when you are one who is known for good works and good deeds. And it glorifies God, whose workmanship you are. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, for what? For good works. That's what it says. And we are created in Him thereunto that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So those are good works. That's, that's the idea of good works. So what are some good works, practically? Let's think through this a little bit. What are things that we can be doing in the name of Jesus, according to His Word, for God's glory, for the advancement of His kingdom, and out of love and true faith? Well, first I would say praying for people. Simply praying for people. That is one of the ways in which we can be about good works. And so often, I mean, there are people that need prayer all around us. Have you ever been walking through Bel Air or somewhere like that and you see someone walk by and they're crying and then you just walk up and engage them and say, hey, I don't know what's going on, but can I pray for you? Have you ever done that before? Praying for people. That is the number one way in which we can, I should say, one of the number one ways in which we can uh, do good works and love people. Feeding somebody. Feeding somebody who's hungry. It's just a practical way to love someone, to do something that is according to God's Word and is a, a blessing to the name of God and to others. Helping someone financially when they're in need. You know, I tell you what, when you give somebody a gift, a financial gift in the name of the Lord, so often they know that God has done this thing. God is glorified because there's just something that was happening that they needed that money for. You couldn't have known that. You just gave it because it was a, a, a generous thing to do, a, a kind, Christ-like thing to do. But you probably don't even know so often when you do good works just what God is doing, how God is using you. So meeting financial needs, helping people that are hurting financially, um, just a love gift like that. Speaking an encouraging word. You never know when just saying one kind thing to somebody is what it takes to get them through the day. 
You never know people in our lives that really have a smile on, but you don't know what's really going on in their lives. And so just stopping and being sensitive to the people that are around you and being kind. Say kind things to people. Tell them what you appreciate about them. How they bless your life. How they're really doing well in this area or so on and so forth. That's a good deed. Sharing Jesus with somebody. Sharing your faith. That is such a great work. That is according to God's Word. It is for His glory. And that is true love and faith. Meeting physical needs. Someone who is, is less able, maybe cutting their grass, washing their car. Um, a, a widow or some, uh, someone who is in a position where they just can't do those things for themselves. Giving somebody a ride. Gosh, that is such a blessing so often to people who don't have transportation. That's a simple, practical, good deed. Serving in your home. Serving in your home. You know, I, I've said it before, husbands... Your wives will know that there is a God in heaven and He is on the throne if you would just make the bed. You know, wash some dishes. I mean, come on. Run that vacuum cleaner around a little bit. It is a blessing in the home. And I, I would also tell my students in youth group, you know, as soon as you can reach over that sink, start washing some dishes. You know, don't, don't have to be asked or made to do it or you've got to get paid. You know, I mean, serve the Lord. Serve your family. Help around the home. Those are good deeds. It's honoring your father and mother. I mean, it's, um, you know, again, according to God's Word. But just uh, serving around the home. Serving in the church. Serving in the church. There's so many needs around here, guys. I've got to tell you, in every church that I have really been at or am familiar with, it's generally true that you've got 10 to 20% of the people doing all the work. And they're, they're burnt out, they're exhausted, they never get a break. And there are so many people that have something to bring to the table. If you are a Christian, God has gifted you to be a blessing to the church. 1 Corinthians could not be more clear about that. And so if you have something to bring, then serve the Lord in the church. God has given you that gift, it's in His Word, it's for His glory, it's for the edification of the body, and it's out of love and faith. And so I want to encourage you guys. And I'll just give another plug for the children's ministry. Michaela came up here a few weeks ago and mentioned that they needed 10 people. Um, she did a great job of just laying it out there what the needs are and why, why it, it, the needs are what they are. And I think we had three or four people sign up. And she was asking for 10. So guys, there is opportunity right there. But there are so many other opportunities. Serving the Lord in His church, that is a great way to do good works. Using your spiritual gifts. A church that is full of people using their spiritual gifts for the blessing of the church is a very healthy church. Amen? A church full of people who are not using their, their gifts, who are keeping them to themselves, is it's a hand with one finger. You know, it's, it's two legs with one foot. You know, it's missing an eyeball and an ear. You, you get what I'm saying? And so that's what a church is like when you have people in it who don't want to use their gifts to serve the church. And that's one of the easiest and most blessed ways to be about good works. Obedience to God's Word. Just simple obedience. Saying, Lord, I love You. I'm going to do what You told me to do. Or I'm not going to do what You told me to do. That's a great work. Submission. Uh-oh. I went and said it. Submission. Submission to authority. Whether that is church leadership or you know, wives submitting to husbands. And the Bible also says that wives and husbands ought to submit to one another in the Lord. Um, submitting in the workplace to your boss. Submitting to a teacher. 
There's something about submission that is so very godly, and God loves submission, and that is a good work, especially when it's a very hard thing to do. That's when I think it really, it really counts. Hospitality. That literally means to love strangers. And so to be a blessing, to care for people. Financing missionaries. I talked about giving uh, to needs. Um, financing the work of missions. That happens indirectly when you give to the church. The church finances missionaries. But you can also give to the cause individually as God will lead you. And I would say giving to the church. Giving to the local church that you belong to, that you have partnered with. That is a great work before the Lord because it goes into uh, advancing God's kingdom. And there are so many ways in which those of you who give, the money goes back out to that end. And I really don't have the time. I had some specific thoughts in my mind that I wanted to get into, but I'm getting ready to have to kind of end it here in just a few minutes. But that is one great way in which you can be about good works and the advancement of God's kingdom and being obedient to God's word and doing it out of love and faith. Family devotions, prayer, worship, etc., etc., etc. There are so many ways in which we can be about good works, right? So the question is, are you? You've been saved. God has been so kind to you, so gracious. He's saved you. And now, how are you displaying good works? Because we're not saved by good works, but we are called unto good works. And so, I just want to do this real quick. Conversely, what are works of the flesh? What are bad works? Because the Bible talks about those too. And then we're going to kind of end right there and go into our communion time. So we've talked about good works, what they are, what the criteria is, theologically, according to the Westminster Confessions, practically, what those look like in our lives. But the Bible also talks about something called the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19-21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there are 15 words here that Paul uses to describe what the works of the flesh are. And so I'm going to run back through them and kind of categorize these real quick, but sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, I would say first and foremost, that is a work of the flesh. That is not a good work. That is a work that grieves the heart of God. That is sin. And so sex outside of marriage, point blank, grieves the heart of God. That is sin. That is not, that is not God's design. Um, you know, other things. There are children in the room, so I just I would like to say more about that, but I'm I'm not going to. Uh, idolatry, you know, worshiping other images, worshiping things that are lesser than God, changing God. And I would say one of the ways that we commit idolatry is when we Christians create a God according to our own likeness, and we do it. Believe me, there are things in the Bible that are very clear that maybe we don't like, and we outright reject it. And we kind of have this other notion of what we think God ought to be like, and we can't really prove it with Scripture. You know what you've done? You've created a God in your own likeness. And so we have to be so careful. I think many, if not all of us, can be guilty of that. But it's worshiping something less than God. Sorcery, that's another one. You know what that is? Literally in the Greek, it's the word pharmakia, from which we get pharmacy. 
And it means drugs and witchcraft. And so uh, drug use, I would say even, falls under this category, an altered state. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, that's hatred, hostility, alienation, uh, fits of anger, that word thumos. Uh, I've talked about it before. That's the kind of wrath that God does not have. It's explosive. It's, it just boils over and then you flesh out. That is a work of the flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, that is factions, disunity. I love this for divisions. It's a self-chosen opinion. We got a lot of that, don't we? I mean, self-chosen opinions. We all got an opinion. We all got something to say. And it can be even divisive at times. So rivalries, disunity, opinions, envy. Uh, and again, the idea of envy is you don't want somebody else to have what they have. Jealousy is you wish you had what somebody else had. That is a work of the flesh. Drunkenness, reveling, carousing, debauched partying. These are all the kinds of things that are works of the flesh. They are contrary to good works and good deeds. They are contrary to that. And that's what Christ came to save us from. That's what ultimately, among other things, Jesus came to save us from the due penalty that was on us, the due penalty that we would receive because of our sin, because of our rebelliousness to God. But He also came to set us free from those kinds of things. That as we are saved by the grace of God, as we are filled by His Spirit, we would be people of good works, marked by good works for the glory of God. We would not be people who live by the lust and the desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Amen? We've been set free from the former and we've been given to the latter. We've been given to good works. We've been set free from the flesh and the actions thereof and given to good works. And so are we about those good works? Guys, I just want to ask you that. Think that through. Which one do you sound like? Do you sound like the one that is good works or do you sound like the one that is the works of the flesh? And as I said, Jesus came to save us from the penalty of, of that and to set us free and to cause us to be people about good works. So when we come to the Lord's table, I want that to be in your mind. I want you to be thinking about that. Think about that's what, that's what it means. Christ died for us. He died for our sin. His body was broken and His blood was poured out. That was a penalty paid upon the cross to satisfy the righteous wrath, the righteous requirements of God the Father in our stead, on our behalf. He died in our place. He substituted for us. That's what it means when His body was broken and His blood was poured out. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Christ died so that we would be saved, so that we would be born again, and so that we would be forgiven. And that's what that means. We, when you have the cup, when you have the, the cracker, what that ultimately, it represents the, the body and the, the blood of Christ. And then when you take that in, you're saying, Lord, I need all of what You have done for me. I need it. I need the Gospel now more than I've ever needed it before. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your sacrifice. Thank You that I could not keep the law I could not live the righteous life that You lived for me. And see, Jesus' death was a very real part of this equation, but His life was too. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. That's called the active obedience of Christ. He kept God's law. 
He was obedient in every point, and He fulfilled it on our behalf. But then there's also a penalty to the law, and Christ paid the penalty too. That's called the passive obedience of Christ. That has been accomplished for us through the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood. And so we're told that as often as we do this, we're to do this in remembrance of Him and that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Amen? And so we're getting ready to enter into this time of communion. And so I would invite our worship team to come on up. We're going to have people hand out the elements this time, so you're going to stay right in your seats. And so communion is a very sacred time, guys, and this is for the church. Communion is for the church. Don't be distracted by the people coming up. I want you to listen to me. Communion is for the church. This is for the believer. And if you don't know Christ, if you haven't put your trust in Christ today, then I would ask you to let the tray pass you by. It's okay. But I want you to know Christ. We want you to know Christ. We want you to be a part of the body here. And we want this to mean something very special for you. Because it is something so very special for us. As we reset our hearts and we reset our minds on the Lord's table, and we, we will, um, in a sense, consider our own lives. Are we people of good works? Are we people that are fulfilling the lust of the flesh continually? And so this is a time where we will examine ourselves. Am I in the faith? Have I put my trust in Christ? Am I about good works? Or am I fulfilling the flesh? Am I doing works of the flesh instead? So it's a time of confession. It's a time to examine. It's a time to confess. It's a time to repent. And then it's a time to worship. Amen? It's a time to say, thank you, Jesus, that you did for me what I could not do for myself. That you gave your body to be broken for me. Your blood to be poured out on my behalf. You died for my sin upon that cross and you rose again from the grave to have victory over death and sin. You did that for me. And so as often as we take this, we remember that. We remember it afresh. And we set our hearts upon Jesus anew. Amen.